When sharing your faith with a Latter-day Saint, it helps to know what their church has taught on several basic topics. For this reason, Mormonism Research Ministry has provided its Crash Course Mormonism. Crash Course Mormonism includes concise articles highlighting what LDS leaders and church manuals have taught on issues that will probably come up in a typical conversation. You can find these informative articles at CrashCourseMormonism.com. That's CrashCourseMormonism.com. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. According to Mormonism, what is the divine potential of man? Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. And with me now is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We have been discussing a common frustration that many Christians have when they are talking to their Mormon acquaintance, and that has to do with the subject of godhood. We know for a fact that men becoming gods is a teaching of the LDS Church. However, sometimes when Christians bring this subject up to their Mormon acquaintance, there's a tendency for the Mormon to either downplay it or even outright deny it. So what we're doing, as we have been for the past few days, is we have been imagining that we are auditing a class at Brigham Young University, Idaho, a class that deals with this very subject. It's a class that's taught by Bruce Satterfield, titled Building an Eternal Marriage, Religion 235. And it's using an official manual, Eternal Marriage Student Manual, Religion 234 and 235. So this is an official class using an official manual. And what we're doing is we're going through his reading assignments that he has for his students. So these are not quotations that we have compiled, as we often do for the show. These are quotations that he has compiled. These are statements that he is teaching to his students. And as we've also discussed, Mr. Satterfield is a very well-respected professor at BYU-Idaho. And a lot of students have written very glowing reports about his teaching methods and demeanor and such. And he's no slouch because he's, I mean, he teaches biblical Hebrew in the honors program there at BYU-Idaho, for instance. So this man is uh, pretty sharp. According to what I've read, the students like him. So the point that we're trying to get across, folks, is this is a knowledgeable professor teaching at a church-owned school, and he's teaching these students, well, I guess you could say a lot of the stuff that we've been trying to teach and educate people about. But yet, why is it? When we bring up some of these statements to the average Latter-day Saint, they act like we just came from another planet, and they've never heard things like this. And maybe because they believe that our purpose is negative, whereas somebody like Mr. Satterfield is positive, well, it doesn't matter what our motives are. The information is laid out, and you have to make your choice as to what you're going to do with that. And that's a good point, because one of the things that really irritates me about Mormon apologetics groups like FAIR is if the source comes from someone who was not friendly to Mormonism, it's almost immediately rejected as not to be believed. And I don't think that's always fair. If the person is saying something that's actually true, in other words, what he's saying actually conforms to reality, then it doesn't really matter what the background or the motive is of the individual who may have said that statement. 
is the statement true or is it false? So we have to look at it for what it's actually saying. In his reading assignment, Mr. Satterfield wants his students to look over this paper, this article, titled The Divine Potential of Man. Now yesterday, we cited Lorenzo Snow. That was the first quotation that he lists in this reading assignment. Now we're going to look at the next statement, which is from the First Presidency message. And at the time, the First Presidency included Joseph F. Smith, who was the sixth president of the Mormon Church, John R. Winder, and Anton H. Lund. And this is the quotation. This is what they say. Man is the child of God, formed in the divine image and endowed with divine attributes. And even as the infant son of an earthly father and mother is capable in due time of becoming a man, so the undeveloped offspring of celestial parentage is capable, by experience through ages and eons, of evolving into a God. Evolving into a God. And it's interesting to note that this is a capital G. It's not a little g. And that's taken from the Messages of the First Presidency, Volume 4, page 206. And and when you say that, uh, capital G, that shows there's no distinction because man is the child of God. In the first part of that quote, God is also capitalized. So interesting, when you capitalize both of them, there's no distinction between the two. He goes on to quote Joseph Fielding Smith. Now, I'm assuming this is Joseph Fielding Smith, who's the 10th president of the church, and looking at the date of conference report, April 1970, it would have to be Joseph Fielding Smith. What did he say? In a conference report, he says on page four, we believe in the dignity and divine origin of man. Our faith is founded on the fact that God is our father and that we are his children and that all men are brothers and sisters in the same eternal family. As members of his family, we dwelt with him before the foundations of this earth were laid, and he ordained and established the plan of salvation, whereby we gain the privilege of advancing and progressing as we are endeavoring to do. And then he underlines the next sentence here. The God we worship is a glorified being in whom all power and perfection dwell, and he has created man in his own image and likeness with those characteristics and attributes which he himself possesses. So there's that potential that is put in every human being that Mormons believe all humans have, that if they perfect these attributes during this lifetime, they will eventually become like God in the next life. They will also rule, as many leaders have said, rule over their own posterity, and it's assumed that they will do this on a world of their own, just as this world belongs to Elohim, or the one Mormons call Heavenly Father. Then there's a next section in this reading assignment that Mr. Satterfield has for his class, titled God's Work and Glory, and first of all, he cites Moses 139. Which says, For behold, this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Now, eternal life we need to define, because it's different. The way it's defined in Mormonism is different than the way it's defined in in Christianity. And Spencer Kimball, he quotes, defines exactly what you're saying. Uh, Spencer Kimball said, In a conference message from 1978, this is in the Ensign, November 1978, page 72, if we are true and faithful, there we go, Bill, obedience, Mm -hmm. we shall rise not alone in immortality, but unto eternal life. Immortality is to live forever in an assigned kingdom. Eternal life is to gain exaltation in the highest heaven and live in the family unit. What's interesting about that phraseology, though, eternal life being equated with exaltation, 
is in 1 John 5, 11 through 13, we have the Apostle John talking about eternal life and the fact that we can know if we have eternal life. And of course, John says it in a way that I, that we have to assume is, yes, we can know this. We may know. We may know. But yet in Mormonism, if you ask a Latter-day Saint, if they know for sure that they are going to achieve eternal life, or as they understand it, exaltation or godhood, there's always this wonder and even this doubt whether or not they will. They don't know for sure. So the question I ask is, well, was the Apostle John pulling our leg? Was he merely playing with us, saying that we could know this? But yet, if we can know it, how come Latter-day Saints don't seem to know for sure if they've achieved eternal life? They all know they're going to get at least immortality. That's, that's a given. That's why you don't ask a Mormon, well, when you die, are you going to go to heaven? A Mormon could easily say yes to that because they know they're going to one of the three degrees of glory. That's a good point. But you need to be specific. You ask them, do you know for sure that you will receive exaltation mm-hmm. in the next life? You will receive, as you understand, eternal life. And as we've read here in this assignment for students, there is certainly a difference between immortality and eternal life in a Mormon context. Uh, next quote he gives is from Marion G. Romney in a conference report from October 1978, and this is found in the Ensign, November 1978, pages 14 and 15. Immortality connotes life without end. Eternal life, on the other hand, connotes quality of life. Exaltation, the highest type of immortality, the kind of life enjoyed by God himself. The crowning work and glory of God is, therefore, as he has said, to bring to pass the eternal life of man. Such is the worth of a soul. Surely it is great in the sight of God, quoting from D&C 18.10, they should be of like value in the sight of men. As God's work and glory is to bring to pass the eternal life of man, so the desire, hope, and work of every man should be to obtain eternal life for himself, and not for himself only, but also for his fellow men. And it will be when he fully appreciates who and what he is, his nature, origin, destiny, and potentiality. In comparison to eternal life, all else sinks into insignificance. For as Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Then he quotes Bruce McConkie. Now, it's funny because Mormons can seem to quote Bruce McConkie, but when we quote Bruce McConkie, you know, we get criticized for that. Although I don't really think Bruce McConkie was ever teaching things that were outright false. I hear this accusation made against him, but he seems to be cited a lot by Mormons. Robert Millet loves to quote Bruce McConkie. But what does McConkie say? In the Promised Messiah, pages 129 and 130, he wrote, Since it is the prophetic purpose to lead men to full salvation in the highest heaven of the celestial world, when they speak and write about salvation, almost without exception, they mean eternal life or exaltation. They use terms salvation, exaltation, and eternal life as synonyms, as words that mean exactly the same thing, without any difference, distinction, or variance, whatever. And I think that's important for Christians listening to this right now. That when we use those terms, we are certainly not defining them the way Bruce McConkie has just defined those terms. So that's why it's especially important, Christian, when you're talking with your LDS friend. If you're going to use a word that you know they use also, but define differently, you need to make sure that you are both on the same page. Otherwise, you're going to be talking past each other, and you're really not going to be communicating. 
Now, when we look at this explanation by Bruce McConkie, certainly that is not how we would define these terms. So it's very important that you get those definitions clear. The next section is achieving godhood, the purpose of the gospel. It's achieving godhood, the purpose of the gospel. And uh, Brigham Young is cited here, and it, and it says, The Lord created you and me for the purpose of becoming gods like himself when we have been proved in our present capacity and have been faithful with all things he puts into our possession. And that's from Discourses of Brigham Young, page 57. And he's going to, tomorrow, we're going to get a chance to talk about Joseph Smith and what he said about man's potential for godhood. It's interesting that these two quotations, this one by Brigham Young, and there's, there's another one that we skipped over because it was by Gordon Hinckley. That was cited before in another reading assignment. So obviously, Mr. Satterfield thinks that these two citations are important, that he repeats them in this reading assignment for his students. Now, again, we're imagining that we're auditing a class at Brigham Young University, Idaho, that is being taught by Professor Bruce Satterfield. And the reason we're doing it, we're going along with his reading assignment, his notes that he has given to his students. So if Mormons really don't believe that they can become gods, why are all these quotations saying just that? It's because they do believe that. They've always believed that. Nothing has changed. And tomorrow we're going to look more closely at the notes and the reading assignments that Mr. Satterfield has given to his BYU students. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.